One way to describe safety net and public hospitals in the U.S. is through facts. For instance, according to the National Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems, this sector provides about a million jobs, 60 billion in wages, and about $130 billion in total economic output. At a time when the country struggles to recover from the recent recession and create jobs, this contribution couldn't and shouldn't be ignored. Then there are other facts, such as, even as more and more Americans obtain health coverage under health reform, some 24 million will still be left out. Where will they turn for care? However, one of the newest reasons to shine a lens on safety net in public hospitals in the U.S. is because there's much, much more to the story. Indeed, it's evolving into one that includes robust examples of hospitals becoming standouts on safety and quality and innovation in their own right. So let's find out what we perhaps don't know enough about and get inspired together on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. I'm very excited about today's program in part because I've been following the impressive work of multiple safety net facilities for years from my perch here at IHI, places like Contra Costa in California, where our own former fellow Anna Roth went back to become CEO. And this WIHI program is an opportunity to shake up some perceptions and misconceptions perhaps, and get some information out that all improvers can benefit from. So to our guests in just a moment, but first, here's IHI's Matt Morse, and he's keeping an eye on WebEx for us to ensure that this program is a satisfying experience for you. Matt. Thanks, Madge. I have just a few items to point out to help everyone make the most of today's call. Uh, The first of which is the chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat window. We're going to keep the chat closed during the beginning of today's discussion to give our guests a chance to share their ideas and insight. We'll open it up after about 20 minutes for all of you to share your questions and comments. Once the chat is open, and we'll go ahead and we'll make you aware of that, please make sure to chat your question or comment to all participants. That way everyone can see your message. Several of us here in the studio will be monitoring the chat area and bringing the questions to Madge and our guests. Um, If you would like to make the chat window larger, uh, just as you see in the image here, uh, or smaller, just hover over the dividing line and click it and drag it as you would an Excel document. There are also sure to be some helpful resources that come up during the program, and we'll be creating a resource document that will be posted on IHI.org with the recording of today's program. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WHI, <coughs> excuse me, by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. This format works best if you're on a high-speed connection. If you think you may be on a slower connection, please join by telephone. And if you're logged onto the computer and have requested a phone connection, you'll see a small phone icon with a red X next to your name listed in the attendee window. If you're dialed in on the phone only, you won't be able to ask questions today, so please enjoy the program. And finally, if you experience any technical difficulty, please chat to me. I'm appearing as Jesse McCall today, and I'll help you out. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thank you so much, Matt. Well, welcome again to WIHI and our discussion of untold stories of quality transformation at Safety Net and Public Hospitals. I'm going to provide brief introductions, and you can learn much more about all our guests on our own website as well as the websites of these guests uh, um, who will be appearing with us. On the phone in Washington, D.C. is Dr. Bruce Siegel. He's the Chief Executive Officer of the National Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems. Before joining NAPH, Bruce Siegel served as director of the Center for Healthcare Quality and was professor of health policy at the George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. Currently, he chairs the National Advisory Council for Healthcare Research and Quality. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, Madge. Thanks for having us. Okay, terrific. And and are you in Washington today? I, I said that. I realized I didn't double check. <laughs> yes, we are here today. Okay, good. How's the weather? <laughs> it, it's actually a little cool, but I think sunny last time I checked. Okay, terrific. 
At Bruce Siegel's side, literally and figuratively, is Linda Cummings. She's Vice President for Research and Director of the National Public Health and Hospital Institute at NAPH. Under her leadership, the Institute has established a substantial research portfolio on a wide range of issues, including quality improvement, patient safety, emergency department throughput, emergency preparedness, all as they relate to safety net hospitals and vulnerable populations. Welcome to WIHI, Linda. Well, thank you very much, Madge. We're delighted to be here. Fantastic. All right, out in the Midwest, in Indianapolis, I believe, today is Steve Council, Stephen Council. He's the Mary Elizabeth Mitchell Professor and Chair in Geriatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine and Founding Director of IU Geriatrics at John A. Hartford Foundation Center of Excellence in Geriatric Medicine and Training. Dr. Council also serves as Chief of Geriatrics and Medical Director for Senior Care at Wishard Health Services, a public safety net health system in Indianapolis. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for the opportunity to be a part of this uh, today here, coming from Wishard Health Services. All right, fantastic. And now we're going to dash on back to the East Coast, and we welcome Caroline Jacobs to WIHI. Caroline is the Chief Patient Safety Officer, Senior Vice President, Patient Safety, Accreditation, and Regulatory Services for the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, the largest municipal hospital and healthcare system in the nation. Caroline has over 23 years of experience in the Health Services Administration. That includes performance improvement, organizational development, program development for long-term care, home care, home health, and more. Thanks for joining the program, Caroline. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Okay, terrific. All right, we've got all the people on board, so let's get the discussion going. I also want to acknowledge that John Gothier, who's part of the WIHI team, in addition to the many roles he plays, he's going to be tweeting about today's program, and if you want to follow his tweets, it's hashtag IHI. And if you're just joining us, a reminder that this is WIHI. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan, and we're talking about public hospitals and the safety net system and performance improvement that's starting to redefine and deepen the mission. So I'm going to begin with the umbrella to a lot of this work, and that's NAPH and its senior leadership, starting with CEO Bruce Siegel. And I'm going to venture that a lot of people on this program think they know what's up with public hospitals and safety net systems in this country and with your organization, Bruce, but they may not have the freshest and most recent picture. So that's your job. Help bring us up to speed. Welcome, Bruce. Sure. Thank you very much again, Madge. You know, um, NAPH is an association that brings together about 140 major safety net health systems. Some are public, some are nonprofit. Uh, almost all are teaching hospitals. And they're united in a mission of caring for America's most vulnerable populations and for caring for some of the most diverse populations. Uh, we certainly have our challenges with 50 million uninsured in our country, uh, many of them coming to our doors um, with the things that are going on with state budgets and the federal budget and sort of the tough resources and tough economic times. It has certainly played out for us, sometimes in hard ways. But at the same time, a lot of these folks are really rising to the challenge, and we have really some of the innovation leaders around the country. So if I was to talk to you about the lean innovations at Denver Health, which have really made care safer and much more affordable. Um, that's one of our members. Uh, Project RED, which is redesigning discharges for patients um, and really reducing readmissions. That comes out of Boston Medical Center, one of our members. And some of the most innovative things around health information technology uh, are happening at UC San Diego, where they're a beacon site and really uniting their community around seamless information for patients. One thing to know about our, our members they have large ambulatory networks. They treat some of the most chronically ill people and manage those things in their community. They're really embracing seamless care and accountable care models. And I think they can teach all of us a lot. All right, well, that's great. And you flagged some interesting examples. So I really, really appreciate that. You put out some really good concepts, lean already, and speaking about health information technology 
and kind of seamless and um, also across the continuum. So thanks, Bruce. That's a great early snapshot. I want to ask you one follow-up question to that before I turn to Linda. And this is kind of jumping ahead and getting into some of the meat of what we'll maybe get into during our discussion section. But I hear often two very differing views about safety net systems and in, with, in relationship to the Affordable Care Act and health reform. One view seems to be a prediction that safety net systems will become less essential as more and more low-income populations gain real insurance coverage and can pretty much go anywhere uh, for care. And then some other studies uh, say that safety net systems uh, are positioned to play an even stronger role because of who's gaining more reliable access to health care for the first time. Um, it's not really a trick question. Maybe both are true, but which view do you think we should be more focused on? You know, yeah, I hear that argument a lot, and I really think it's the second view. And let me just spend a second talking about that. We know that one of the big things of health reform is expanding Medicaid to cover millions of people. That's really sort of the underpinning of the Affordable Care Act. And these providers, these health systems, are the largest Medicaid providers in the country. So for, I think and we all believe that they're going to have a central role, role in reform um, and not be fading away. The other thing I'll say, Madge, is the evidence also points in that direction. We've seen, had an experiment in Massachusetts which looks very much like national reform. And what happened there was that the safety net providers, like Cambridge Health Alliance, like Boston Medical Center, are now seeing more patients, not fewer. Um, people, when they got insurance, kept going there. They liked those places because they spoke their language and they were used to it. And frankly, you know, there's just not enough capacity necessarily for them to go elsewhere. So, so far the evidence is the safety net's gonna be more needed than ever. All right. Thanks so much, Bruce Siegel of the National Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems. Uh, the research that Bruce is referring to, uh, it was actually published in August of 2011. It was in the Archives of Internal Medicine, and uh, there's both an editorial as well as a piece on this issue about looking at kind of what has happened here in Massachusetts under health reform. We captured that. Uh, we'll have an abstract of, and a link uh, on our resource document that we uh, put together for every single program. And if we have a second, we might put it right into the chat box as well. But I just wanted to flag that. All right. Thanks, Bruce. Again, if you're just joining us, this is WIHI. That was Bruce, Dr. Bruce. Bruce Siegel. Uh, he's the CEO of the National Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems, and we're looking at the improvement agenda that's taking hold in this part of healthcare. Uh, Linda Cummings uh, joining us next as Vice President uh, and working alongside uh, Bruce and at your research institute. You're focusing on research and innovation. So uh, drill down a little bit more. What's happening among member hospitals with quality and safety? Thanks, Madge. Um, I think that one interesting thing is that it's sort of a new story for many about quality in the safety net, but for us, we've actually seen um, a number of our members really focused on transformation over a long period of time and focused on improving uh, care for vulnerable patients. So we've had a good foundation to really kind of make this focus explicit over the past year. And about a year ago, the uh, NAPH and our executive committee formed a transformation center um, to really uh, bring resources and tools to help our hospitals to develop the next generation of leaders and to form collaboratives, and hired uh, Dr. Jill uh, Steinbrugge, who just recently joined NAPH, to really lead this transformation. So we've seen a number of members engaged in this kind of work. And um, we have, and the Transformation Center is really designed to accelerate it and to, um, to sort of bring together all of our members around this effort. Then uh, um, a few years ago, we started to really look at the quality performance of our members for several reasons. And one of it was to engage, one reason was to engage our members in improvement. Um, another one was really to change the perception, which I think is what you've, you've focused on this whole conversation about the quality of care. And what we found is really at odds with the public perception that, in fact, um, our member hospitals exceed the U.S. averages on most of the core measures. And, in fact, they, um, the trend in their performance is toward improvement, so they're constantly improving. So we were 
gratified to uh, confirm something that we had suspected and to be able to share that information both with individual members and then with the public uh, as a whole. What we've also found is that our members are very engaged in using this information, that they use it for internal improvement, they use it um, for engaging their boards in quality improvement, and they use it for local officials who are really interested in seeing how their safety net hospital, their local hospital, is doing compared to, to other safety net hospitals or other similar organizations. So, Go ahead, sorry. I just, yeah, I just wanted to say that yeah. I think the investment in quality among the membership and certainly at NAPH has been substantial. Thank you very much. Um, you know, we we put up here for any of you, by the way, who are just on the phone, a reminder uh, that if you're not looking at the same, some of the, a couple of the slides that each uh, guest has, uh, you can uh, email info at ihi.org, and those will be sent to you. If you are, are looking on the screen, though, you see this slide that we put up that uh, Linda and Bruce provided, CEO quality reports. Can you just tell us what this slide represents here? Okay, that slide shows um, we give individual reports to uh, each of our members, and it blinded reports that shows their performance. So the yellow line indicates where a particular hospital is located on uh, relative to all the rest of our members on, um, on a particular quality measure. And we selected for our um, initial set of reports both those um, those measures that we thought had the greatest variability among our members, and then those that are tied to uh, per, uh, pay for performance. So we're trying to really focus the discussion in terms of what are the barriers, what are the challenges for improvement, and do that in the context of looking across the membership as a whole. And one thing I would add, Mag, uh -huh. uh, is also that you'll see the high performers are not blinded. Um, that way people in our membership can see who's really doing a good job on a certain measure. Okay. And we then plan to highlight those lessons for the rest of our, our membership through our learning opportunities, uh, webinars, and the like. Okay. Right. okay, great. All right, terrific. All right, you were just listening. That's Bruce Siegel at uh, the National Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems and his colleague, Linda Cummings, who's also heading up a whole uh, research institute, innovation institute that's going on there. Thank you both. All right, we're going to uh, head on uh, over to Indianapolis and Steve Council from, Wish, excuse me, Wishard Health Services based in Indianapolis. So, Steve, uh, your work centers around new and in innovative models for vulnerable seniors. Uh, it, there's an interesting acronym, GRACE, which I really like. Um, so tell us about the work and what do you think has been especially noteworthy uh, about this area for improvement? Well, thanks, Madge. We uh, developed the GRACE model in particular knowing that older persons with multiple chronic illnesses and geriatric conditions often do not receive recommended care, and their care is also uh, quite fragmented between various doctors and healthcare settings. And, there, and this also accounts for a disproportionate share of the costs of healthcare in uh, these patients. Uh, and in particular, in the safety net hospital with low-income seniors uh, having uh, greater socioeconomic issues uh, complicating their treatment it was also a concern of ours. So we developed the GRACE model, as, as you mentioned, it stands for Geriatric Resources for Assessment and Care of Elders. This particularly uh, is called Geriatric Resources because it's meant to be a resource and support to the primary care of older people in the community health centers affiliated with Wishard Health Services. Uh, we start out with a nurse practitioner and social worker team that do a home evaluation and then work specifically with the primary care physician to address uh, geriatric conditions in those patients, medication issues, home safety, really the whole gamut. They're also supported by a weekly team conference with a geriatrician and a mental health liaison from our community mental health center, as well as a pharmacist from Wishard who can review the pharmacy records and assist uh, with medications and uh, such. Uh, so those weekly team conferences, they'll develop a care plan taking into account the patient's goals, 
and then uh, meet with the primary care doctor and together prioritize and decide who's going to do what, and then, uh, then really provide that resource to get things done. So the nurse practitioner and social worker are aligned with the primary care doctor and then uh, implement the care plan, uh, whatever it might be, starting an antidepressant or making sure someone gets to physical therapy consultation or has transportation to their next physician visit, uh, or whether they need uh, health care directives or getting uh, eligibility for Medicare or Medicaid uh, services. So they'll provide that ongoing care and uh, really over time develop a relationship with that patient uh, and provide continuity and coordination of care such that if they're in the hospital, uh, if they get hospitalized, they do work with the inpatient team, provide information about patient's baseline, and assist with the transition planning. And then they actually uh, uh, implement the care transition. So they do a home visit after discharge from hospital, uh, do medication reconciliation, making sure the patient has a new medicine list that they understand, make sure home health uh, folks show up, and that the uh, patient gets back to their primary care provider and then continue. So we've been excited about this model. We conducted a very large randomized controlled trial that was published in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, almost three years ago now. And uh, we showed that this improved the quality of care in particular for people with depression that was maybe previously unrecognized or undertreated. It helped uh, address things like falls and polypharmacy and better continuity uh, of care. And this resulted in a lower utilization of resources. We saw that uh, emergency department visits of the GRACE uh, patients compared to the control group were decreased. And then what's getting a lot of attention now is that in the high-risk group, we sh saw that hospitalization rates were diminished. Uh, in the first year, by about 12 percent, within the second year, about 44 percent lower hospitalization uh, rate in the GRACE patients compared to the control group. And so we've been looking at uh, advancing this program within our Medicare Advantage plan here at Wishard and helping other health systems uh, deploy these kind of tactics. Um, thanks, Steve. And by the way, the slide that we're showing is actually a kind of screenshot of uh, actually a more recent article that came out in Health Affairs in March of this past year. We'll also track down that earlier uh, study in JAMA so we can put that on our resource document. I guess the fact that it was, uh, you know, cited uh, both in JAMA and then more recently in Health Affairs means that something's going on here, as you've been describing, that's a standout and perhaps breaking some new ground. Could I ask you to maybe elaborate on that? I mean, this is an area um, that many, I'm sure, who are on the program today and many more we wish were, uh, are dealing with this population, both in terms of uh, an aging population as well as um, the dual eligibles in terms of Medicare and Medicaid. What do you think uh, is kind of the, the, the step forward that might have been taken here or is being taken here with this model? Uh, that others in the country need to be paying attention to? Oh, thanks, Madge, for that question. Uh, that is a, a magic question. We, <laughs> people are very interested in what's, what's the special sauce. Yeah, right. And uh, we think there are several factors. Uh, one is that uh, this is a team approach. So you have a nurse practitioner and social worker both working together uh, to address both the medical and social needs of the patient and then aligned particularly with the primary care physician so, th so that they not only develop a relationship with the patient but also with the physician. So they're really acting as a triad or team uh, or even a, te a, quiet, uh, you know, a team including the uh, older adult and, and in many cases the caregiver. The second is that they, we built this on uh, some, some evidence-based care protocols for the geriatric conditions like falls or depression and medication management that was a uh, was also included in a web-based care management program and so the care plan would be developed uh, based on evidence and what we know works uh, in terms of improving outcomes for seniors but then there was regular team conferences to review and check what had been done and what wasn't done and how could we uh, uh, you know adjust and, and better meet 
the needs of that person in a uh, in a problem solving and continuous quality improvement type mindset. The last that I can't really uh, yeah. minimize uh, is the longitudinal relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, just having the uh, ongoing relationship with the team uh, that that we saw people did change behaviors, health behaviors over time as they gained uh, greater trust in the nurse and social worker and uh, and the doctors also uh, made better utilization of the teams as they worked together. Okay, well, that's a, those are some really key ingredients. And um, thank you for uh, giving us a bit of that profile here. And I'm hoping, and I'm sure people have some questions, uh, more things to ask about that, as well as uh, questions for all our guests. So that was uh, Dr. Steve Council from Wishart Health Services. Uh, and improvements and innovations brought to you by the nation's safety net systems and hospitals. That's our topic on this edition of WIHI, and I'm your host, Madge Kaplan. So we're headed next to the largest municipal hospital system in the country, New York, New York. Caroline Jacobs is the patient safety officer uh, for the New York City Health and Hospital Corporation and a senior vice president there. Caroline, uh, you're bringing up the rear here, but we always save sometimes <laughs> the biggest for, and, and, and uh, you know the big story sometimes for last here. So uh, at least in terms of our presentation in the first half hour here. So um, I was thinking that it, uh, you, I'm not sure, people pr- usually give this to the mayor of New York to say that who has the toughest job in America, but transforming a historically neglected set of hospitals, often written off by many, cannot be easy. And yet the more one spends time sort of looking carefully at what's going on at a lot of the hospitals under your purview, there's so much change and innovation going on. That's not to say problems have disappeared, but there really is a new story emerging. So that's what I'd love uh, for you to just give us a little flavor for. On our planning call, you mentioned the need for a burning platform. Um, (laughs) And I was gonna ask you, you know, what is that at the the city's public hospitals? Well, thank you, thank you, Madge. Um, I'd like to actually start off by uh, uh, mentioning something that Linda Cummings mentioned, and, and that is that HHC, the Health and Hospitals Corporation, has been on an improvement journey for a very long time. In fact, in the 1990s, HHC's board of directors passed a resolution that total quality management would be the organization's management philosophy. So quite frankly, that commitment way back in the 1990s has served us in, in good stead. But by the mid 2000s, we had established a fairly good foundation for what we would ultimately be able to achieve. We had a robust quality improvement program, great accreditation results, coming off of a time when many of our facilities had been recommended for non-accreditation. And we had a a fairly aggressive capital plan. We have beautiful new um, facilities also for um, our patients. Caroline, I'm just going to jump right in and just ask, can you back away just a teeny bit from the phone? We're hearing you loud and clear. And okay. Is, is that I, moved, I moved in because earlier you saw, I thought I needed to move closer. Uh, you're you're uh, right. You can blame me. I'm so sorry. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> All right. but you, men- <laughs> you mentioned our burning platform, and I, yeah. I think the burning platform was really our desire to shift the trajectory of our performance from good to great. And what did we really need to do to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace based on quality and safety while holding fast to our mission, which is essentially to take care of all New Yorkers irrespective of their ability to pay and notwithstanding the fiscal constraints that we're living under. So the question really was, could we be recognized by our communities and by all levels of government as an essential healthcare asset? And in addition to that, in 2006, the president and CEO of HHC declared a very bold vision that he wanted HHC to be recognized as one of the safest healthcare systems in the nation by the end of the decade, quite a bold, radical goal. So, you know, there are many different levers that we use for change in our organization, um, and because quality and safety are cross-cutting functions, this required working with many different disciplines across the organization. But first and foremost, we needed to have demonstrated leadership commitment from the board level on down. We had to build some infrastructure and capacitate our folks to really do the work ahead of us. All of our facilities have patient safety officers that have been trained um, via the IHI patient safety officer training program. 
We sponsor quarterly senior leadership forums, bringing in the best names in patient safety to help chart our course around patient safety. We've had Jim Bajan, Rob Wachter, Doug Bonacom, Jim Conway, Alan Frankel, David Marks, just to name a few. We are a Team Steps environment. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Team Steps, it's an evidence-based toolkit of strategies and tools to improve communication across healthcare workers. We have 22 active sites. Over 9,000 of our staff have been trained on Team Steps, and we have 619 master trainers. And we're also a just culture environment with over 21,000 of our staff trained on the just culture. But to really drive improvement, we've embraced transparency. We have a public transparency website where unblinded information is provided to the public on our quality and safety performance. But we also provide that information internally um, to our board of directors, and our board of directors meetings are public meetings, so anyone who comes to those meetings will hear about our safety and quality performance. Just yesterday, we had a session where we talked about our hospital-acquired infections, CLABs, surgical site infections, cavities, ventilator-associated pneumonias, and we've had some good success with all of those in all of those areas. In 2006, our VAPS rate was about 10.5 per 1,000 um, ventilator days. We're down to an average of about two um, per 1,000 days, with some facilities having gone from many, many months without any VAPs. You've got to remember, we have a very large system, lots and lots of hospitals, so that's an aggregate number for our entire system. Our CLABS rate has gone from 7.6 down to under three per 1,000 days, and this year was a major focus on um, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, and we brought that rate down by 25%. And our mortality has also gone down from 1.55 in 2005 to about 1.4 in 2010. We leveraged our technology. We have an electronic medical record, and we've been able to use that record to mine data on our patients to create registries that would enable us to follow cohorts of patients over time to support accountability for their care and improve patient outcomes. Most recently, we've implemented a Institute for Medical Simulation and Advanced Learning, which is designed to provide state-of-the-art training programs to improve the safety and quality of the healthcare we deliver. I think we were the first public hospital system to go transparent, and we were also one of the first public hospital systems to open a medical simulation and advanced learning site. Um, we have courses on advanced airway management, basic airway management, central venous line insertion, cardiac code teams, and we've also just recently in implemented a shoulder dystocia and teamwork skills program, which over 459 of our medical staff and other clinicians have been through. We, too, are a lean site, not lean meaning slender, but lean meaning lean um, Toyota technology. We call it breakthrough here at HAC. We have about 14 active sites with over 700 rapid improvement events to date, and we've actually realized the savings of about $211 million in revenue and both revenue and cost savings. And most of those lean events have been in the area of perioperative services, emergency department services, and inpatient services. Um, one of the most rewarding things that we've done is partner with others, NAPH included, IHI included, the National Patient Safety Foundation. We've forged a wonderful relationship with our labor colleagues, the CIR and the SEIU. We hold an annual patient safety conference um, with our labor colleagues, for our resident staff, and for other clinicians across the system. We're doing one next month on medication safety. Um, so we have been really been able to forge good relationships with the trade associations, our QIO, and in, in doing that, we've been able to participate in many of the collaboratives that they've offered that also helps to drive some of our um, improvement work. If I think about today, though, in terms of burning platform, you talked about a burning platform, I think today we're probably more influenced by external forces um, generated by healthcare reform, um, and that's really guiding some of our efforts, value-based purchasing coming, becoming a patient-centered medical home, accountable care, and the like. Um, I just want to add that HAC has applied for patient-centered medical home designation, and 11 of our hospitals, six of our diagnostic and treatment centers, and 16 off-site ambulatory care sites have been recognized by the NCQA as level three patient-centered medical homes, with scores ranging anywhere from about 80 to 
to 95 points. So we're doing really well in that regard. And I think I'm just about at my time, so I'm going to stop there and see <laughs> before you cut me off. I'll oh, see if you have any no, questions. Not at all. Well, Caroline, wow, that's a, quite a roster of information, and I thank you for compiling. I, As people know on this program, I give everyone the challenge to compress many years and days of work and uh, on multiple levels, and in this case across systems, uh, and uh, helping to maybe boil it down uh, into sort of soundbite for, um, form here for the show. So I thank you for that. Uh, that was Caroline Jacobs, the Chief Patient Safety Officer, Senior Vice President at the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation. So really, um, you know, you hop skipped, hopscotched across uh, your hospitals, and I'm sure there are very particular stories at each one. I loved sort of hearing about the multiple levels of engagement, including with uh, labor in the workforce as well. We are going to now open things up for chat. I think that makes the most sense, and uh, I have some questions in my back pocket as well. And uh, let's see what the participants who are on our program today have on their minds. And Matt, why don't you remind folks uh, how to use the chat function? Sure. You'll all see the chat window located in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. Uh, and there's a white box located next to Send To. Uh, when you're sending messages, just make sure that you're sending to all participants so that everyone on the call can see your message today. Thanks. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, um, let's, uh, you know, um, jump right in, folks. And uh, uh, we remember we sort of started out with sort of a high-level view from the National Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems, and we then looked very at a very interesting way at what's going on with vulnerable seniors, dual eligibles, if I could just get all those syllables out there, at, uh, in Indianapolis uh, with Wishart Health Services. Steve Council told us about that, and then we've been listening to what Caroline is telling us about New York City hospitals. Um, I'm going to kick things off as people will kind of rev up here. Um, I'm wondering, one, one big uh, question that comes up uh, over and over again um, is whether or not safety net providers um, are also sort of positioned in this day and age with all the external pressures Caroline was referring to, have a better sense about utilization of resources, uh, that um, things are not unlimited, and uh, so have found sort of innovative ways to uh, work in that respect as well. And I think I'm going to throw that to, to Bruce, uh, start with you, Bruce Siegel, and uh, feel free anyone else to chime in. Thank you, Madge. And I think that's a very interesting question. I think for many of us, we've been essentially doing ACOs or capitation for years, just not calling that, calling it that. So often um, when you're in the safety net, you're, you know, either getting, you know, some amount of money from a county or from a state or someone and really being asked to manage a whole bunch of people. And to really do that at risk, because if you, your utilization is too high, um, you're going to wind up essentially eating um, the difference. And I think that has sort of been the, the de facto you know, situation for us. The other thing I would say, Madge, though, is for many folks in our world, and I think this extends to lots of folks on this call, the idea of embracing the care of a whole population, of population health, like we talk about under the triple aim, uh, is also second nature. And, and many of our members, if you look at, say, uh, Contra Costa Health Services in, in the Bay Area of California, for instance, they've taken that on explicitly, as has Anna Roth, you mentioned before. Um, and very often they're part of or aligned with the health department, which sees the health of the public as being among their top goal. And part of that is really stopping the unnecessary service that you really, you know, they don't get paid for and really promoting health to make it in a system like that. Okay, thank you. Um, Linda, anything you want to add to that? It, well, yeah. I think that just the, the one point that, uh, um, as Bruce was describing, the kind of innovative work that's gone on in our hospitals, what we've increasingly seen under, as health reform progresses, is that a lot of these are models for hospitals across the country that the problems that safety net hospitals are, are facing or the challenges are going to be challenges for the entire healthcare system. And I'll give you one example. Um, Cambridge Health Alliance completely redesigned their emergency department, and they did that without hiring additional staff or without building additional space. But this redesign actually um, 
their volume increased during this period by 25%, but now 94% of their patients are seen within 30 minutes of arrival, and that used to be 90 minutes or more before then, and the average length of stay for being in the ED decreased by 13% to two and a half hours. So there are creative, evidence-based, deliberate strategies uh, to improve care that I think are going to be instructive for the entire uh, hospital system. Very, very interesting and always interesting to hear about what's going on at the Cambridge Health Alliance in our own backyard here at uh, IHI in Cambridge. Um, we have a question from a Jesse Gerson who's asking, how is lean methodology uh, really being applied here? All of you referred to it in one way or another. Um, Steve, I don't know if it's uh, kind of relevant for you, but feel free to chime in and maybe I'll also ask Caroline. Well, I think we've a lot of those concepts went into developing the GRACE model and in a, a kind of a continuous quality improvement uh, mindset as we uh, continued in, to evolve the program. I might just uh, refer back to some of the you know the prior uh, questions as well that that you know that ten years ago when we first envisioned the GRACE type model, it was far before patient-centered medical home or ACO speak. And uh, all, uh, as mentioned, really with an eye towards having to identify a better way to meet the needs of vulnerable seniors in a more cost-effective manner. And uh, I think it, it also taught us that these more expensive kind of interventions need to be targeted at those people who can benefit the most and that as well are, uh, have the potential for cost saving. Interesting. Okay, thanks, Steve. Caroline, feel free to answer that, but I also thought this might be a good question. Um, Alan Katz is asking, starting in the boardroom, is there a difference in governance strategies and tactics in safety net hospitals, put in quotes there, compared to other not-for-profit or other for-profit facilities? Um, well, I, I, will, I will start. Um, our our board of directors is the, the composition, I should say, of our board of directors is um, defined in legislation. So that in and of itself makes us a little bit different from um, what one might experience in um, the not-for-profit or the for-profit um, sectors. Our board of directors actually meets um, at least 10 times a year, the full board of directors. So, so many boards, a quarterly boards, we meet every single month. We also have a very aggressive quality assurance committee of the board of directors that oversees quality and safety, and that committee meets every Friday morning for approximately three hours. Um, so we have a very active, um, educated, involved board of directors that really helps to drive, if you will, the performance agenda of this, of this organization. I don't know that the average um, not-for-profit or for-profit board has that level of engagement in the activities of the organization. But I, I, I just share that as, as the composition of my board, and maybe someone else can speak to what a not-for-profit board might be like. Right. Okay. Well, feel free, anybody who – thank you, Caroline, uh, who's with us on the show. Feel free to chat in some ideas on that. I guess maybe, Bruce, let me just uh, flip this back to you. It, as you look across your member hospitals, Would how might you answer that question in terms of uh, any uh, unique or distinct thing uh, with um, – Governance. Now, of course, you reminded us that many safety net hospitals are uh, also not-for-profit hospitals, teaching hospitals, so we're sort of crisscrossing here through various sectors. But is there anything else you might add around governance? Sure, Madge. I would say two things. I would, first, I would say I think the role of governance can never be stressed too much in ensuring quality in, in, in any organization. And I think you know everybody who's served on a governing board has to realize that the bucks stops with them, that they are ultimately responsible for the quality provided there. I have served on public boards. I've served on private boards. I've seen private boards do good jobs and bad jobs. I've seen public boards do good jobs and bad jobs. So, um, and I think even within the public board, you see great differences. So the Health and Hospitals Corporation that Carolyn is talking about has enjoyed very stable governance over the years. And I think these results are partly uh, a testament to that. Uh, I think in sometimes in some of our members we have things like elected boards 
which can make it harder because sometimes you might have unplanned or more rapid turnover of board members. And I think in those situations, it's important to really get the training of those members who may, you know, not be from healthcare, um, may bring many other assets, but not be from healthcare, um, and really need to get oriented to sort of the, the basics of how we measure quality and how important that is, uh, in addition to finances and other things they may worry about. Okay, that's very, very helpful. Thank you. Uh, and again, anyone who wants to chat in more on governance, please do. There's a question I think uh, I'll ask you, Steve, from uh, Sam Perryman. He's asking uh, about specific program components that you, let's, let's say you talked about sort of things that were clearly effective. What about some things that you discovered along the way that maybe were not as effective uh, in terms of the population that you were trying to help? Well, that's, uh, those are great questions <laughs> as well on the, on the flip side. But yeah. uh, if uh, one, one thing is, uh, is, you know, as we get into care transitions and all the uh, attention on prevention of unnecessary rehospitalization, that we're really uh, taking lessons from the GRACE uh, experience that we're trying to align the uh, transition teams and any uh, patient care involvement with the primary care practice. Uh, and actually, I love what the VA uses for their term to describe the patient-centered medical home. They use PACT, P-A-C-T. Yeah. That's the patient-aligned care team. And so that when we start doing care transitions, in the GRACE model, it's the team that already knows the patient. It's the nurse practitioner, social worker. They help, as I mentioned earlier, about with the transition planning and then do the transition and make sure people get back to primary care. What we definitely want to avoid going forward is having a separate care transition team that uh, does not have continuity in some way with the primary medical home or the, or the primary care office so that it we avoid just adding one more potential silo of care. Now you have to, instead of go from hospital to home and primary care, you've got to go from hospital to a transition team to then your primary care. Uh, uh, so I think that's something that we've uh, clearly learned through our processes, that, that anything we can do to align things with the patient and the, and the primary care team uh, is of most benefit. Okay, thanks, Steve. Again, WIHI, we're talking about public hospitals and the safety net system. Uh, I want to uh, maybe go back to uh, Linda and, and perhaps if, Bruce, you want to chime in. I'm curious about the one area we're, we're sort of alluding to but not necessarily talking a lot about, and that has to do with financial models and revenue streams. That's, of course, a big factor. Caroline referred to external uh, issues here kind of bearing down on uh, change here. Uh, given everything that we're talking about, uh, are there is all of this uh, sustainable? Uh, what what other kinds of changes uh, can kind of enhance the agenda that you're talking about today? Well, I think um, there's no way around the fact that sufficient financial support is critical to sustaining improvement, and because that allows for either the resources to devote to improvement or to send send people to uh, to training programs. I think you, you may know, Madge, that um, Kaiser Permanente has um, given a grant to NAPH for our members to attend various IHI training programs, right. and they've taken extensive advantage of that. So I think there's no way around um, recognizing that resources are critical, but there's also leadership, which NAPH has invested heavily in through its uh, NAPH Fellows Program and now through the Transformation Center to develop and lead a culture of uh, quality uh, within our hospitals or to support, as you've seen with, um, with Caroline and with Steve, all the work that's already going on. So um, I think we're very conscious of sustainability. That's part of the Transformation Center's um, goals and efforts, and, but sufficient resources are critical. 
Right, exactly. I, I, I think uh, uh, that that piece, of course, kind of weaves in and out. Um, there's, there's, uh, and will continue uh, to evolve. Carolyn, I maybe I'll, I'll ask you this as well, in terms of kind of, for lack of a better word, sort of business models and financial models. Uh, this is, of course, a, I'm sure a daily factor at uh, the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation. How might you answer sort of what the challenges are right now? Well, you know, just just staying away from the fiscal challenges, which which is which are so large and so clear, we are we are um, really in a very difficult position with with financially, with where the federal government is going, as well as where our state is going, um, with both you know Medicaid and Medicare. That's going to be very problematic as we go forward. But I think one of the major challenges for any healthcare organization is, in fact, sustainability of of the um, programs and services that are begun, um, not just because of limited financial resources, but because of competing priorities. And so part of the work of senior leadership is always about helping staff to understand how to meet all of the, the various demands that are placed upon them so that we can sustain the, the foundational work. One area where that has been had been a little bit problematic for HHC, and we, you know, we recognize that, and now we're really trying to, to redirect our efforts. Is was in the area of healthcare acquired infections. We, as I spoke about earlier, we had come from 10.5 um, ventilator um, um, uh, that phase yep. to um, down to about three, and then we started to creep up again, and then we had to really put some concerted effort into getting it back down again because, because the natural tendency of, of humans is to drift and to not always continue to do the things in the, the appropriate way, to, to always implement the bundle and do all of the interventions that they're supposed to make. As we move forward with value-based purchasing and patient-centered medical home and all of the other things that we need to do, we have to be very um, conscientious about assuring that we have methods built in to support sustainment of all the various efforts because if we if we don't do that then I think we're really going to begin to to lose the battle so that's that is that is a difficult challenge, and I think it's a challenge for every healthcare organization. Okay, thank you, Caroline Jacobs of the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation. Because there was a mention by Linda Cummings about Kaiser Permanente, this is a good moment for me to mention this. Uh, IHI is proud to announce a new fellowship opportunity based here at IHI, sponsored by Kaiser Permanente, and fellows will join some of the others here at IHI. A one year full, a one full immersion year on site at IHI, starting. July 2012 through June 2013, excuse me. The fellowship is available to those working in safety net organizations in the United States. Those from both healthcare delivery and advocacy organizations will be considered, and you do not need to work for a Kaiser Permanente organization to be eligible. So you can find out more about that on our website, www.ihi.org fellowships to learn more. And if uh, there's a slide there that Matt has put up. Um, so thank you very much. Somebody very quickly has asked how many slots will be funded. Uh, this is <laughs> – that, that, was, that was very fast. Uh, I think this person was typing while I was talking, but that's good. Uh, there is one slot uh, initially, uh, at least for starters. So, uh, uh, But uh, this is no time like the present. Uh, if you're interested to find out more, and please do. And there's also contact information available at uh, that web link if you want to follow up and speak more with somebody about that. Um, I'm, I think as we kind of get close to the top of the hour, uh, and oh, I know, and I also wanted to mention, I'm sorry, I wanted to mention that Dr. Bruce Siegel, whom uh, you've been enjoying listening to on today's program, he's going to be at our 23rd Annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. That's December 4th to 7th in Orlando, Florida. And his workshop is uh, one of nearly 200 educational sessions, but his in particular might be one you want to check out as you think about uh, coming to the National Forum. We hope we would see you there. And again, you can find out more about that on the homepage of IHI.org. And Matt just put up a nifty slide 
side there. So I think what I am going to do as we uh, head to the top of the hour, and I really want to thank everybody. Uh, I think we learned a tremendous amount today, and I hope we can keep this conversation going. Uh, maybe I'll sort of go around the horn and um, ask two different, uh, two questions. You can choose to answer one or the other or both or ask uh, answer one you'd rather have gotten, which is this. Um, <laughs> the concept of safety net, is that something that in a way we hope will gradually uh, almost dissolve or become, uh, you know, more one and part of everybody's mission in some sense or become sort of something else in healthcare? That's one big question I want wanted to ask. And if you had to ask anything of those who are joining the program today and, excuse me, and those we hope will uh, listen to the archive version of the show, whether or not you work in a so self-declared or, or declared public hospital or safety net, how can the rest of healthcare, the rest of the improvement community uh, kind of join hands with this agenda? And I realize these are both very big questions, but maybe you could uh, take a stab at that. Steve, why don't I start with you out in Indianapolis? I'm sorry, could you repeat what you <laughs> Repeat those questions? The, the first one has to do with whether the concept of uh, the safety net notion in some sense needs to evolve and maybe we might, you know, maybe go away as, as uh, this becomes part of everyone's agenda. And the second one really had to do, what can the rest of healthcare do in Indianapolis, for example, to sort of support the agenda that you've got going here? Yes, uh, I think... <laughs> Clearly, as uh, we've discussed today, that the evolution of the safety net, I think, you know, the safety net health systems have been dealing with, uh, as Bruce mentioned earlier, a lot of these issues for a long time and looking at how we can better address the needs of complex uh, patients with also high costs to eliminate waste and, uh, and provide better outcomes. Uh, and the, for the rest of healthcare, I think. Some of the models here that we've developed, including GRACE, might help inform uh, the uh, health reform and, in, in particular, payment reform. As we talked about sustainability of programs like this, under fee-for-service Medicare and Medicaid, programs like GRACE cannot be uh, really sustained or advanced uh, because care management, uh, telephone, uh, proactive telephone follow-up, team conferences, those kinds of things are not paid for or reimbursed under traditional fee-for-service mechanisms. So we need to uh, really move forward, and I think these examples from the safety net can help inform the current health you know, reform processes around ACOs and medical homes and care transition programs and, and even these dual eligible you know, integrated models as states work to uh, improve the care and cost-effectiveness of those services. That's a great point. Thank you so much, and thank you, Steve. Uh, Bruce and Linda, uh, I'll, I'll go to you, and then I'll, I'll wrap up with Caroline. Uh, again, you can uh, answer my questions or take a stab at them or, or, or one of your choosing. <laughs> sure. No, I'll try to answer both your questions at once. And, and that is, uh, I think that the safety net can teach the entire U.S. health system a lot. With that said, I think the issues that we are dealing with the issues of people who may not have resources, um, the issues of people who may not speak English as their first language, of uh, those issues are everyone's issues increasingly across all of healthcare. Um, we've had economic problems that aren't gonna change probably anytime soon, and our country is becoming rapidly much more diverse from coast to coast. And I think these are issues for everyone on this call to grapple with. All right, good point. Very, very interesting. Uh, Linda, anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, I think it, I would just, I wanted to mention that um, in terms of the innovations that are going on in our members, that our, our website um, provides a, an updated list all the time with good descriptions of those innovations. So I think for people following up after the call, they might find that informative. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. All right, Caroline, you get... Pretty much the last oh, last word. I think, I think Bruce uh, sort of uh, took some of the some of the words out of my mouth. But I, you know, I, I you know, in a, in an ideal world, it would not be important to use the word safety net, and that would just simply fade away. But you know, we don't live in a world that's ideal. Okay. 
And as long as there are individuals who are uninsured or underinsured, do not have the ability to finance their health care, um, you know, experience um, lack of equity in their, in their social lives as well, I think there will always be a need for a public safety net. However, our work is really about assuring that the public safety net does not become synonymous with being inferior or providing substandard care. And I think that's what, um, with the help of NAPH and others, that's what the public safety net hospitals has been trying to achieve. And that's certainly what HHC has been trying to achieve to make us a provider of choice irrespective of the fact that we are safety net. All right. Actually, that's a fabulous point, and I knew there was a reason I was going to have you wrap up the program. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Caroline Jacobs, the Health and Hospitals uh, Corporation in New York City. Uh, Steve Council out of Wishart Health Services and Indiana University in Indianapolis. And Bruce Siegel and Linda Cummings from Washington, the National Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems. I am indebted to all of you. Uh, you worked very hard with me to help plan this program, and I thank you so much for your contributions today. And also thanks to all our guests. Next up on WIHI on November 3rd, we're going to get a story from Columbia, South Carolina, organizing for health. It's, it's quite related to what we're talking about today, what if an entire community came together and identified all the various issues that contribute to poor health and decided to do something about it uh, from uh, many different uh, sectors and uh, stakeholder areas. Uh, that's going to be on October, excuse me, November 3rd from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. So look for that information on our website. It's there right now. I want to remind you that you can download the chat and any slides we use today when you log off the program. If you were only connected by phone, please email info at IHI.org, and the friendly people there will be happy to send you the slides that we used on today's program. Vicki Minden puts together a wonderful resource document. Look for that and the archived version of the program uh, by tomorrow morning on our website. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Kristen Shear. And we we use this music uh, that we open and close the program to original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. So a big thank you to our guests, to all of you who joined. If you know people who were hoping to join, who didn't, please tell them about the program. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>